DJ Files on Double J. He's the godfather of punk, a 72-year-old wild child and the self-proclaimed chairman of the board. Over more than 50 years, 17 solo albums, five Stooges records and literally thousands of hours on stage, he has cemented himself as one of the most important figures in rock and roll. He is Iggy Pop and he is a giant of modern music. I'm Gemma Pike. This is The J Files. And there are so many defining moments in Iggy Pop's career, but I guess it all starts out with how a kid called James from a trailer park outside Detroit became Iggy Pop. Some of the first gigs he made himself a, a wig out of aluminum foil. Just took this piece of cloth and just twisted all these pieces of aluminum foil, painted his face white, cut off his eyebrows, and, and found this old, like, turn-of-the-century nightgown all the way down to his legs. It was really bizarre. You started off in an interesting way. You were a drummer and um, played a bit of guitar. That's right. Before you really became a... Um, well, actually, I was, a, a I, was a, I was a drummer first, and then uh, then I became a vocalist, and then after I got the record contract, I bought a guitar. Right, right. You know? Why would you do that? Why did you change from drums to vocals? Because uh, at the <laughs> obvious, the obvious reasons. Uh, you went up front. Listen, you go in the van to the gig, you pull into the gig, the singer walks in with his mic stand, right? <laughs> you know, I'm carrying uh, my drum set in the cold and the snow. You know, you have to break it down, you have to set it up. I wasn't that great at it anyway. So I thought, wait a minute, I'm in back, he's in front, <laughs> uh, he's getting all the trade, you know, he's getting all the, pulling all the chicks, you know, he's carrying his mic stand out, you know, and uh, it just seemed to be, uh, it, it was something I always wanted to do. high school rock band called the Iguanas, a weekend band. And uh, then later I was a stock boy at a record store when I graduated high school, saving up my money for amplifiers and such, and gigging with much older musicians. They would call me Iggy when I'd, when I'd miss a beat. They'd hey, Iguana! And the guy in the record store would say, hey, Iguana, give me that, give me three of PS 943-2, you know, and everything, and mail these out to Philadelphia. And if I mailed them to Cleveland, right. then, Iguana, you know, this, and, and uh, the, the name stuck about a year later and I got the idea for the Stooges and we actually played together somewhere. I hadn't decided what my name would be and I didn't expect to get any press. I got an enormous amount of press because we were so kinky and I hadn't expected and, and the, the guys in the press had been around the music scene and so they, they, all they knew me by was Iggy. And uh, I've got the ball, I might as well run with it. Did you hear Iggy talking about how he started out as a drummer? He once said that his parents were an enormous support for him and his musical pursuits. 
In fact, when he started learning the drums as a teenager, Iggy's parents vacated the master bedroom of their trailer because it was the only space big enough to house the drum kit. But he ditched the drums and planted himself out the front of his Michigan band, The Stooges. This is a really important moment because it's when a lot of different things came together. The Stooges started out in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1967. They released two albums, their self-titled debut in 1969 and Funhouse in 1970. They broke up, reformed with a different lineup, released Raw Power in 73 and then broke up again. It was volatile, uh, it was short-lived, but the impact was immediate and long-lasting. So many great artists have claimed the Stooges as an influence. The Ramones, MC5, Violet Femmes, Pixies, The Drones. And the reason is largely due to Iggy Pop. Freed of the drums, he started to experiment with what it meant to be a frontman. He was one of the first to really have contact with the audience. I mean, most of the audiences come and they just look at you and you, know, you do something for them, but... I thought it was great that he'd get right in there and terrify him. And we used to spur him on. You know, come on, you got to do it. What I especially liked is there'd be a big crowd, and then right when he jumps, they had a time, the crowd would open up and wham! That the Stooges were a bunch of very ultra-aggressive, mean, spiteful, lazy people, and we wouldn't have succeeded anywhere on the face of the earth. Except that's um, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's about it, yeah. But you did. I spotted right away. I mean, I looked in the mirror one day, and I said, look, man. <laughs> I said, let's go for the under, an underground. Now, there was no underground then. You know, I used to go to a, the high school coffee cafes and watch the kids. And I said, well, out of every five, there's one, there's one uh, nutter. <laughs> you know, not nutter. <laughs> I shouldn't say nutter. But, you know, there's one, there's one with open ears. Let's go for them and forget the rest of the country. <laughs> Let's just go for the, the, a certain sort of person. And, and that worked fine. I still feel that if the band had, had the band as a whole had, had the, the ambition that, that, with which I'm cursed, uh, we could have gone much farther. By 1974, the Stooges had fallen apart again, and Iggy's ambition as a performer saw him pursue a solo career. Someone who helped him in this pursuit was David Bowie. The pair had met a few years earlier at a famous New York nightclub and restaurant called Max's Kansas City. In the same week, David Bowie met Lou Reed and Andy Warhol. Fast forward a few years and Iggy and David were hanging out in Berlin together, trying to beat a bit of a drug addiction. And this now famous period in David Bowie's life resulted in his iconic Berlin trilogy, as well as Iggy Pop's very first solo records after the Stooges had broken up. We took a vacation together before, you know, before this and we talked, you know, we talked about the record. You know, our way of talking about the record is, you know, I get, I get drunk, and he waits until I say something funny, and then what I do, he says, write it down. That'd be a good song title. And now that we get the titles that way, and then uh, I go home and, you know, and think, well, what does that title say to me? And I write up the lyric, and the music comes later. Come. 
then I change everything and he changes everything. And we, you know, I have a fist fight by the end of the album usually. You know? <laughs> but the most pleasant part is usually done around dinner. You know, that's how I've always worked with him. You know. The friendship between Iggy and Bowie was long-lasting. David Bowie even covered an Iggy Pop song for his 1983 album, Let's Dance. Molly Meldrum spoke to Bowie on Countdown about why he chose to cover China Girl. That was written in Paris. Uh, Jimmy had fallen in love with a Vietnamese girl. Right. Uh, And I always thought it was one of the stronger pieces of material that we'd written. There are a few of his tracks that I feel didn't get enough play. And I've always wanted to, secretly, I coveted them. Right. I would really like to have sung them myself as well. So now it's a good chance, and uh, Jimmy's heard the stuff and really likes it as well. Right. Well, the collaboration between you two has been, I mean, pretty uh, immense over the years. Yeah. And I remember at one time going to Detroit and seeing you playing keyboards for his tour. Yeah. Uh, how much influence has he had on you, uh, if I any? Th- think... Nothing really ostensibly. I think more, more in his very hard-headed approach. Right. I think I, I got a more, a better idea of how to be direct from right. his writing and his, more his writing. His performance and my performance have little to do with each other as far as stage artists. But the, uh, the way of writing, I think he's very good at cutting through um, superfluous lyrics and coming right. straight to the point. I'm bored. I'm the chairman of the board. A few years earlier in 1979, Iggy Pop also appeared on Countdown and it has gone down as one of the weirdest and best moments in Australian television history. One album. Hiya, Dogface. <laughs> Iggy, how are you, mate? Listen, welcome, G'day. G'day. welcome to the show. Um, the first time I saw you was in Detroit a couple of years ago, um, live in concert. What's wrong? You don't you see <laughs> You behave yourself. Now listen, we've got to ask you some sensible questions. All the right. first time was a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago. Uh, was with uh, Iggy. Will you concentrate on the questions? Uh, um, was with David Bowie. Yeah. Right? Very good friend. No, you mean he played piano in my band. Yeah. yeah. Um, he played a very low piano. He was with me. Right. Yeah. Now you've worked together sort of record-wise, haven't yeah, you? Yeah. 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 And on the slide too. I know. Huh. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, now listen, with uh, with with David Bowie. Um, yeah. He's had a lot of influence on you, I gather. Yeah. Yeah. And what, can you answer these questions properly? He taught me how to compromise. A few years on from that notorious countdown appearance, Iggy cemented himself in the hearts of Australian music lovers yet again by covering an Australian song by Johnny O'Keefe called Wild One. Iggy's take was called Real Wild Child, and you may recognise it because it was used in the opening theme to a much-loved, long-running music video TV program, Rage. Iggy 
Pop is one of the very few artists in modern music who's been able to maintain a lengthy and revered career. And I guess that has to come down to his attitude and never losing sight of what and who he's doing this for. In 1988, American journalist Laura Gross spoke to Iggy Pop for Triple J and they talked about how he resisted the whole idea of being Iggy at first, but then he grew to love it. Iggy's getting to be pretty acceptable these days. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's all right. I don't have a problem with it. You, you hated that nickname when you were a little I boy, right? I used to right? hate it, yeah. Yeah, it was something I just a wince and they, they called me that to make me mad. But I think a name is... You know, what's in a name, it's just what you make it stand for. And I'm pretty proud of it. You know, I'm proud of what I do. So. As I say, it stands for you. Yeah, I'm, so mm-hmm. I'm pretty happy about it. But why did you do that to yourself in the beginning when it was a name you hated and say, well, I'll put it on, put it on one of my albums, you know? Well, because uh, there, was, there were a lot of other groups and a lot of other singers in my area alone vying for the same few spots. And uh, when I saw the name in print, I realized it was catchy. And I also realized I, if it's, that I was, already, I was already getting attention under that name. I wasn't going to go and change it and confuse people at that, at that stage in the game. Right. You said you look at it as a saga, almost like a film in a sense, you know, mm-hmm. that runs through your mind. If you, if you can separate yourself that much, can you separate yourself enough to say what that character's influence has been on rock and roll? That's not for me to say. Mm-hmm. Somebody else has to, mm-hmm. has to do that. Here's another great quote from you. Rock singers are, if you really said it, you you give people quotes and they go, I never said that. Rock singers are nothing but low-grade forms of Superman. We're nothing but a bunch of trash Superman. Did you say that? Yeah, I did. Uh, That's pretty accurate. I mean, that may have been a little an extreme way to state it, but I think think what I was talking about was pretty valid. And I think think a a lot of singers and entertainers in general at times will set themselves up as kind of tin gods and they try to they'll try to live up to uh, something that nobody can live up to and and sooner or later you know uh, there's a there's a Japanese saying the bigger the front the bigger the back sooner or later somebody's gonna peek their head around the side of the facade and they're gonna see the shabby bits too so you know Do you that's think all I was talking about of course I have shabby bits. No, I wasn't going to ask you that. I was going to ask you if you... You betcha. Because, you know, like most, most entertainers and musicians and people who get good at doing one little narrow thing like that generally have a big selfish streak because that's what enables you to get good at this one little thing. You know, you just... Basically, you have an F.O. attitude toward a whole lot of other things and people. Right. Do you think of yourself as this... Have you set yourself up to be a Superman, a tin god? At times, uh, at times, I've felt pressured to fulfill that sort of role. Yes, absolutely. Um, How about now? No, I don't know. I have the uh, benefit of my experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm very, in, in one sense, I'm very lucky to be alive because I know there are a lot of other people who are doing the same sort of monkey shines I was who did not survive it physically. So... Having, having had the opportunity to live through my experiences, I thought it would be a good idea to take a look at them and see what I can learn from it. So one thing I learned was that it was sort of pointless for me to try to live up to anything, really, except what I owe, which is a good performance. I owe a good performance, and that's what I'll give. All I want to do is tell God what to do tonight. 
I'm Gemma Pike. Thanks for stopping by the J Files. The J Files.